Dairy Disputes and Cheese Wars. Welcome to the first episode of Cartmel's In Conversation. As many of you know, Cartmel's has a uniquely long history going back over 200 years. Technology may have moved on somewhat since then, but some things don't change. I'm delighted to host our very first podcast, a space in which we hope to share some of the conversations that infuse our daily lives and practice at Cartmel's. My name's Lara Elder, and in today's discussion, I'll be joined by two of my colleagues from the trademark team, Ali. Hi, Ali. Hello. And Will. Hello. In this first episode, we'll be discussing what makes a registrable slogan, reflecting on a certain oat drink brand's recent win at the General Court, and then we'll move on to a case involving halloumi cheese and the weird and wonderful world of collective trademarks. So, Ali... Veganuary has become a pretty popular way to mark the beginning of the year. This year maybe more so than ever since we've all been uh, locked down in our homes and looking for some new challenges in the kitchen. I think you have an interesting EU general court case to share with us involving involving oat milk. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Lara. Very excited to be part of the first Cartmills podcast. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm quite a fan of, of oat drink, uh, so I was pretty excited about this next decision. As one of my favourite oat drink brands has won at the EU General Court with a successful registration of its slogan, it's like milk, but made for humans. There's actually quite an interesting backstory to the slogan. Oatly uh, is a Swedish food brand that produces dairy alternatives from oats. It first launched its It's Like Milk But Made For Humans campaign in Sweden in 2014, where it actually raised quite a lot of eyebrows, especially those of the Swedish Dairy Lobby, a federation of Swedish farmers and dairy companies, uh, who went as far as to sue Oatly for disparaging cow's milk as being unhealthy. The message Oatly, of course, was trying to send was that milk is actually made for baby calves and not for uh, humans. So Oatly was actually subsequently banned from using the slogan in Sweden and it was fined a hefty £1,000. Although they weren't really deterred from this, they actually published the, the lawsuit on its website, which along with several other controversial marketing strategies has sparked a bit of a rift between dairy alternative, the dairy alternative company and Swedish milk producers. It's now been dubbed the, the Milk Wars. Uh, so Oatly went on to launch the campaign in the UK, spending uh, upwards of £700,000 in outdoor advertising displayed through London's underground and billboards across the city. I'm not sure if you saw them. I saw them on uh, at St Pancras in King's Cross. Yeah, I've certainly seen one or two around. I had no idea there was such a battle behind them, though. Yeah, exactly. So while Oatly is hasn't been sued in the UK, like in Sweden, the slogan has received a huge amount of press coverage in the UK as, as well as the EU, further highlighting the divisive nature of this kind of message that they're trying to send. And it was this controversy and thought-provoking nature of Oatley's slogan that was actually a key factor in persuading the EU General Court into allowing Oatley to regi- register the slogan as a trademark. 
Right. So, I mean, that's that's a question our clients often ask us. So I've, I've got this slogan, can I register it? I mean, while, while they're registrable in principle, in principle, in practice, it can be really quite tricky, can't it? Why is that? Yeah. So the, the general court found that because the message conveyed by the mark challenges and contradicts what consumers know about milk, that consumed that it's consumed by humans and it's an essential part of the human diet. It's the contradictory nature of this message which has made consumers stop and think about the message and its validity. This cognitive process is one of the key factors in trademark law for identifying distinctiveness. If a consumer has to struggle to understand the meaning or associate any descriptive meaning to it or challenge an idea or norm, then they're more likely to remember and record it when looking back for this type of product later on in the supermarket, for example. This is the essential function of a trademark. It's to be able to be capable of helping consumers identify goods produced by one company and differentiate it from other brands of the same product. So Oatly slogan is very much a minority when it comes to registrable slogan marks. It's not, it's not that slogans have to reach a higher threshold or standard to be registrable. They are still judged against the same criteria as any other type of mark. It's just that most slogans are intentionally designed with the promotional message in mind. They're often mottos, phrases or taglines that are used to advertise or communicate something favourable about a product or a service. For example, more than just a card for debit card services or save our earth now for clothing. These are all slogans which communicate a promotional message but aren't in any way thought-provoking or surprising. This is a big no-no in trademark world and the downfall for a lot of slogans. So the key thing, I think, as you're saying, is that the slogan has to communicate something to the consumer that makes them immediately link it with the origin of the, the product or service. It's it's that connection with a particular single origin and not just a general promotional slogan that could be a to almost any product. Exactly. Although there's an interesting factor that the, the general court picked up on in the Oatly case is that while it's the sole function of a phrase is often uh, among a lot of people considered to just promote the goods and marketing puffery, if you will, they're unlikely to have trademark significance in the sense that the phrase won't instantly identify or distinguish one trader from another. You'll most often find that instead the slogan is used together with the house brand. For example, Kit Kat uh, uses Have a Break together with its slogan match, which for a long time, uh, Have a Break wasn't considered distinctive. It was only after some time that it then created its own distinctive character on its own. Yeah, that was, that was an interesting case, actually, Have a Break. I mean, I think that's slightly different to the one, one we're talking about now, isn't it? As you say, um, it's a, a slogan that wasn't registrable to start with. And it's only the fact that so many of us love our Kit Kats and know that Have a Break is followed in our minds, if not to, <laughs> if not when you see it on the trademark register, is followed by have a break, have a Kit Kat. It's that sense of um, use and acquired distinctiveness, as we call it in the trademark world, it, it, that got it over the hurdle. But that wasn't the case for Oatly, was it? No, it wasn't. So the general court recognised that in the Oatly case, the mark had two functions. It had a promotional function in terms of advertising uh, some message about the about the, the product itself, 
but it also had the inherently the, ident- the ability to identify the commercial origin of the product and to function as a trademark. So just because the mark has a promotional message, uh, it can still function as a trademark. Uh, But achieving that all-important distinctiveness threshold is easier said than done. And it can sometimes be very difficult to determine how the relevant public will perceive a slogan when the promotional message ends and when the distinctiveness qualities begin. And so often consumers will require that or develop that over time, which, as you say, in the KitKat case, it acquired that distinctive character. Uh, So... That's one of the one of the reasons uh, the EU IPO and the Board of Appeal initially refused the Oatly case. Right. Uh, to a growing number of consumers, uh, they thought that the phrase uh, might have been considered as true. So the, the likely those people participated in, in Veganuary. Um, this this phrase isn't really surprising or thought provoking to them, although. Uh, the general court didn't really dwell on this point uh, because the evidence that was presented showed that uh, this is still very much a minority view with dairy products still heavily consumed throughout the EU. Mm-hmm. It does make me wonder whether this there is a shelf life to this type of controversial uh, slogan, uh, that when slogans might be revolutionary at the time of inception, if that message being conveyed was then to become common belief, uh, for example, that dairy alternatives are better than milk, then it could, wouldn't, yeah, might lose its surprising or controversial factor and ultimately render it non-distinctive over time as opposed to acquiring distinctiveness over time. That's that's often the uh, the challenge with a, a, a successful trademark, actually, is that it becomes so commonplace that, that uh, it starts to lose its special distinctive character that li- links it to one business. But uh, that would be opening a whole can of worms to go down that into that area today. I think that's a topic for for another day. Um, so, so one last question for you, Ali. Oatly were really successful. They got their their slogan onto the trademark register, albeit having to go all the way to the EU general court to to get there. Um, what's your take home message for businesses who are looking to to register their slogan? What are, what are the key things that they should think about? I think there is a lesson to be learned from Oatly here, uh, although it, m- it might not be everyone's strategy to create a trademark that annoys a lot of people uh, or the Swedish dairy lobby. Uh, but what business uh, do businesses do want to think about is designing a slogan with a trademark in mind, one that's thought provoking and requires the consumer to stop and think and remember you. So, Will, it's it's great to have you with us. I think you're going to tell us about a, another case that's made its way through the EU courts in, in recent times involving the halloumi trademark. But before we delve into the law, I have to just ask, are you a fan of halloumi cheese? <laughs> yes, uh, always cheeseaholic. In fact, this case has not only just made me hungry, but also just uh, be desperate for a, a foreign Mediterranean holiday, as you'll, as you'll see. Ah, well, we look forward to hearing about that. So this is a, a case about um, halloumi versus, well, a, a trademark. Um, I don't quite know how to say it, to be honest, but I think BBQ Lumi or barbecue Lumi. <laughs> and it involves a particular subcategory of trademarks known as a collective trademark. So perhaps you could remind us to start with what what is a collective trademark? Yeah, the role of a collective trademark is to show that goods and services originate from a member of a particular organization or association. So they differ from a traditional 
trademark, which is the classic distinguishing one undertaking from those of others. Um, unlike normal trademarks, collective marks can be registered for descriptive terms that may otherwise be rejected. And the UK IPO give quite a neat example of chartered mortgage advisor, which would not succeed as an ordinary trademark because it couldn't distinguish one particular chartered mortgage advisor from another, but mm -hmm. would be acceptable as a collective mark because it gives the message to consumers that these services are provided by an advisor in this sense belonging to that association. Uh, so the collective mark in this case was Halloumi, which is registered for cheese only and is owned by, are you ready for this? It's quite a long name. <laughs> the, the Foundation for the Protection of the Traditional Cheese of Cyprus named Halloumi. Uh, oh, try saying no, that with a mouthful of halloumi. Yeah, I had no <laughs> idea there was such a thing, although I think cheese is a, a particularly um, emotive issues for many countries. Uh, maybe we will, we'll, we'll try and avoid delving into the political issues. Um, but I'm pleased we're going to be talking about cheese rather than uh, mortgage advisors. That's uh, <laughs> encouraging. So uh, am I right that the... the uh, I'm going to call them the foundation for short, the Halloumi Foundation. They took issue with a third party's trademark application. That's right. A Bulgarian company applied to register a figurative mark, which I'll now try to describe to you. It contained the word barbecue Lumi. That's the letters BBQ and then Lumi, L-O-U-M-I, at the top of the mark against a blue sky. And below that in the middle of the mark was what's described as by the EU courts as a Mediterranean scene. And that's sort of stuck in my head. They obviously thought it couldn't possibly be Northern Europe and definitely not, <laughs> definitely not the UK. Um, it pictures sort of boats and outdoor seating, exactly the sort of scene that we've all been missing lately, really. And then at the bottom of the mark in, the, in a sort of close-up is a plate of grilled food, which may or may not be cheese and may or may not be halloumi. Uh, the application, though, was for dairy and cheese products, meat extracts, as well as restaurant services. Now, for the for the benefit of those who can't see it, I'm I'm the the, the trademark I'm looking at in front of me is it's quite tasty and it does have those uh, rather distinctively striped grilled cheese slices at the front of it so i could be convinced it's halloumi yeah i think if you ordered chicken or fish there and that arrived you'd be a bit disappointed yeah. <laughs> uh, it's also got either a lemon or a lime right in the middle of it as well i'm not sure what that's doing there that should be in the gin and tonic i think we're all looking forward to our holidays clearly <laughs> so anyway the, the halloumi foundation they opposed this application didn't they alleging that the marks are, are confusingly similar what did the eu courts have to say about that well, they were unanimous that visually the similarity was low. They said the signs coincided only in the group of the letters Lumi. Uh, and in the figurative mark, the public's attention would be drawn towards the word barbecue Lumi, and in particular, the initial element barbecue rather than Lumi. So the shared element of the marks contributed pretty little in the comparison. Uh, the Board of Appeal found there was no phonetic or conceptual meaning to the marks. The General Court disagreed on that. It considered that there was a low degree of phonetic similarity and that the figurative mark had at least some conceptual meaning of grilled food, even if it wasn't possible to state categorically that that food represented pieces of halloumi cheese. Uh, but the courts agreed with the overall conclusion that there was no likelihood of confusion. Yeah, okay. And I recall that the foundation actually went on to appeal that point to the, the Court of Justice, didn't they? 
Yeah, that's right. The CJU observed that the general court were too quick to rule out a likelihood of confusion on the basis that once the general court had found a degree of similarity, albeit low, they needed to go on then to make an overall assessment of the factors, including the similarity or identity of the goods or services. So in other words, this this, this was back in the day, by the way, when the CJU were much more uh, open to hearing appeals of this nature. They've uh, got a lot stricter in recent times, but they essentially told the the general court to go back and do its homework and <laughs> and, and give a properly reasoned decision. So uh, so this was kind of a ray of light for the foundation, I guess. They got the case sent back to the general court and uh, had a second bite of the of the cheese. Yeah, um, what did the, what did the general court say second time around? Well, they were yeah, like you say, they were asked to sort of have another go, but in typical fashion, they sort of said, "Well, we still reached the right conclusion the first time. Um, we just <laughs> we'll just we'll just take a slightly different path to get there." But they acknowledged that a low degree of similarity between the marks may still offset be offset by a high degree of similarity between the goods and vice versa, and it found that there was no similarity in respect of meat extracts, catering services, and restaurant services because they were neither identical or similar. And it then went on to weigh up the relevant factors for the remaining goods and said, although the goods of the application were similar to varying degrees to cheese, the goods are everyday items, the relevant public will show an average degree of attention and they just wouldn't be misled as to the commercial origin of the goods. But I think one of the most important observations that the general court made in the case was that the distinctive character of the earlier mark was weak and the weak distinctiveness didn't rule out automatically a likelihood of confusion but it does limit the extent of protection of the earlier mark especially where the shared component lumi itself was also weak so the low degree of similarity of the signs was just too unlikely to contribute to a likelihood of confusion existing for these goods and consumers just wouldn't establish a link between the marks. Oh, that's interesting because uh, when I look at the the trademark that the Bulgarian company applied for and I see barbecue lumi and a picture of grilled cheese in a, in a Mediterranean scene as you've beautifully described to <laughs> us, it does immediately call to mind halloumi cheese to me, albeit in a kind of nod and a wink way. Um, but perhaps that's the issue here. We're, we're thinking... When we see that, we're thinking about a characteristic of the product itself rather than a particular place it's originating from. Um, And I suppose this goes to the heart of of what a collective trademark is and does and its limitations in a way. Uh, I mean, a collective trademark's worth their salt. Where where does this leave them? (laughs) Yeah, whilst it's quicker to obtain a collective trademark than a protected designation of origin where the product, like you say, must be manufactured within a specific region, it's quite clear that the criteria for establishing a likelihood of confusion in trademark law anyway is just as applicable to collective marks. They will be assessed in the same way. Mm-hmm. And there's just no special treatment either for them in relation to distinctiveness. In fact, the judgment was quite damning as to the distinctiveness of this particular collective mark. And when it came to weighing up a likelihood of confusion, this had a profound effect on the scope of protection for halloumi, which just didn't stretch to figurative application for barbecue lumi. So I think for a collective mark to be strong, it needs to be able to distinguish those goods and services of its members from those of others, rather than only designating a characteristic of the product. Um, But that doesn't mean that the registrations are completely powerless. In fact, only last year, a UK high court case uh, found that an application for a figurative sign 
that included the words, excuse the pronunciation now, Haju Halumi was refused due to a likelihood of confusion with the foundation's collective mark. Yeah, so if we, uh, again, I have the benefit of being able to see a, a, a picture of this uh, this trademark that w- was successfully stopped. Um, it's it's quite different to the Bulgarian trademark we've been discussing in that Hajdu, the element, is, is sort of presented separately from Halloumi. So you could mm. well see this on a on a cheese product and people would think that Hajdu must be a company that's part of the um, consortium that protects halloumi and that this is actually a genuine halloumi product. I guess that's the difference here. Yeah, that's right. And of course, it included the word halloumi sort of identically, uh, mm. whereas, of course, the barbecue loomy one with with all of its figurative elements as well, it was just too far removed really for uh, the, the scope of protection of halloumi to sort of bite Oh, it's an interesting case. I mean, just the, the, I think there's a sort of public policy point here, really, um, which is often the case where there's a, a sort of intersection with different types of IP rights. Here, we're, I think the, the EU courts are effectively saying um, that the Halloumi Foundation, it's, it's a kind of producers association, as you say, they might have a, owned a, a protected domain of origin right, which is not a trademark, it's a separate IP right and that they shouldn't somehow be allowed to obtain a stronger protection through trademark law than they could through through those other systems, which are really about stopping people adopting identical names for, for um, products that aren't made um, in the right way or the right place. Well, thank you very much, Will and Ali, too. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to ask any questions, please do get in touch. Our contact details can be found on the Cartmel's website. Thank you very much for joining us for this, the first ever episode of Cartmel's In Conversation. We hope you've enjoyed it and hope you'll join us again soon. Mm